Welcome to History Notes, a podcast from the Greensboro History Museum, where we are making history by talking history. History Notes is created by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. History Notes intends to provide instructional resources for our area educators and content for all learners both in and out of the classroom. From K-12 to graduate-level students, teachers, administrators, and the overall community, History Notes is for you. Let's examine the individuals, trends, and events that have helped shape who we are today. And don't forget to take notes. It's now time for History Notes. Hi, my name is Glenn Perkins, and I am the Curator of Community History at Greensboro History Museum, and excited to be launching our history pod out into the stratosphere today with our inaugural chat. Um, Today, we have a special guest. It's Lynn Duminell. She is the Robert Glass Cleland Professor of History Emerita at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. Uh, She is She's recently published the book, The Second Line of Defense, American Women in World War I with UNC Press in 2017. Uh, The paperback version is coming out in early 2019. And we're here to talk some about women's experiences and how World War I changed some of their lives, some of their opportunities, uh, and other wonderful things like that. So welcome, Lynn. Thanks very much. Uh, So excited to have you here in Greensboro. Um, So let's start with a real basic question. Why do you think it was important for us to learn about women in World War I? Well, there there are two things, really. One of them is that um, World War I is a modern war. It's a bureaucratic war, and civilians are crucial to the process of mobilization in a way they'd never been before, and women are absolutely central to that. So when we look at what women do during World War I, like, you know, um, raising funds or working in munitions factories, we're actually uh, learning how modern wars are fought. So that's part of it. And the other thing is it's just really interesting to find out what impact the war has on various groups of women, and there there are lots of different stories to that. Yeah, and I think all those transformations are are really a fascinating part of a war story that we often think just of the battles being fought, uh, and in this case uh, in Europe, but there were battles being fought at home as well. And you cover so many of those in the book, and you talk about Things from protests to volunteering to new forms of labor uh, and even popular representations of women in the media. So you talk about the the home front, and I think that was a term coined for World War One. That's correct. Uh, um, so how was the home front important to the overall war effort, do you think? Um, there are lots of different ways in which it's important. One of them is that um, there's a huge... Um, effort at propaganda Mm -hmm. to encourage Americans to support the war, and that includes supporting the war with their money because it's not a tax-based war. It's actually done by raising funds through the Liberty Loan Foundation, for example, or through the Red Cross. And so money raising is a crucial part, and food conservation, Mm -hmm. and building the things that you need to fight a war, the material of war, a lot of which was done by women. So, and uh, and I think one of the real contributions of your book is that you focus a lot on African-American women's experiences. Uh, can you just give us a sort of general overview of what their, of, of what the, the sort of conditions were like for uh, African-American women at the beginning of World War I? The U.S. De- declares war um, in April 1917. So what's the situation 
Well, the most important thing that historians say about the period right as we go into World War I, as the European War starts in 14, is the great migration of African Americans out of the South. Probably 500,000 or more men and women left the South. And they did so in part to flee segregation, disenfranchisement, and violence, but they also had the pull of the opportunity to work in factories. And this is different, and and the factories of the North and the Midwest. And this is different because, for example, African-American women's occupational opportunities were domestic labor and farm labor. They were pretty much excluded from industrial labor. So World War I creates an extraordinary opportunity to have better jobs and better circumstances. As it turns out, they were often uh, not, um, they were not given the best jobs. They were given dirty jobs, difficult jobs. They experienced racism, but it's still a really exciting opportunity. So that's, that's a piece of the story of the transformation of work opportunities and the movement out of the South. And did those any of those opportunities outlast the war? Not many. I think what's important is they're out of the South. They have new opportunities uh, to vote, for example, uh, after the war, and to live in um, you know better circumstances. Uh, the the uh, the opportunity to work in factories is shut down for the most part and doesn't open up again until World War II. So um, uh, one part of the book that I thought was interesting, um, you mentioned Charlotte Hawkins Brown, um, who was an author and educator, uh, founder of Palmer Memorial Institute, which was a day in boarding school for African-Americans in Sedalia here in Guilford County. Uh, and in, um, she founded that in 1902. And Charlotte Hawkins Brown advocated for the need to support black women working in the defense industry, you mentioned. Um, and with so much focus on the fate of soldiers abroad, was it uncommon to focus on conditions for women workers at home? No, it, it wasn't. And, that, and the reason for this is because of women activists at home who are really publicizing the fact that women are central to mobilization. And this includes suffragists who make a big deal of it, but also organizations like the YWCA, which have as one of their mo- mottos that they are supporting women as the second line of defense. So it's really quite common to view helping um, assist young working women as part of the war effort. So let's talk some about these uh, organizations and how the, the the demands on them during the war sort of changed what they were doing or some of their focus. Or I guess in some cases it even brought them into being. I know that in here in Greensboro, the Red Cross chapter was established in 1917 as a direct response to uh, the declaration of war. The Red Cross is very important. And although men dominated the highest offices, women are really pretty much the people who are running the show. And they're, they're knitting bandages, and they're creating, um, they're raising funds. Uh, and it's all over the United States. It's really a massive um, effort. Um, that pulls women in. They're wearing uniforms. They're marching in parades. Um, Coming back to the issue of race that we were talking about earlier, to my knowledge, Red Cross units all over the country are segregated wherever they are. Mm -hmm. So it's not unusual. Uh, It's not just in the South that that's the case. Yeah, we have um, one of the people we feature in um, our uh, World War I Through the Eyes of Nine. Her name is uh, Margaret Faulkner. And she was the supervisor of the Guilford County Schools at the, time, at the Guilford County Rural Schools at the time, which was the shorthand way of saying the segregated African American schools. But the first female supervisor of schools, um, and she was one of the members 
of the Florence Nightingale Auxiliary of the Greensboro Red Cross. So these were a group of women who were contributing lots of volunteer hours, but being always taken, separated out in the records of the um, Red Cross as being separate because they were the African-American women. Uh, Mar- Madge Faulkner, she did uh, a lot of work in the home service. Can you mm-hmm. kind of tell us a little bit about what that was? The home service is really interesting. The concern was that when soldiers, poorer soldiers went away, that their families might be at risk for not having enough money, having various kinds of problems dealing with their um, men being absent. So the YWCA started a nationwide program to try to create visitors who would go to homes to try to make sure that people uh, had what they needed and to, to assist them in finding help if they if they um, if they did need help. I thought, incidentally, that that the um, the material on her in your exhibit was really terrific. So a little plug for what a good exhibit it is. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, she was such a fascinating person, and that's kind of the fun thing about the exhibit. There's so many uh, interesting individuals that we get to see the experience of the war through their eyes, so we understand a little bit more about how a war fought even a long way away can change an entire community. Um, I think let's take a really short break right now, and we will come back, and we have some uh, audience questions for you um, from our uh, group of students from Southeast Guilford High School. You are listening to History Notes, a production of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To discover and learn more about the discussion and our exhibits, visit the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro, or visit greensborohistory.org. That's greensborohistory.org. Now let's get back to History Notes. And we are back for the Greensboro History Museum podcast um, here today, talking about women in World War I with uh, author and professor Lynn Duminell. Um, we're also joined here in the Press Play Studios by a group of uh, high school seniors from Southeast High School in Greensboro. They're members of the National History Club, and they are here to contribute some interesting questions uh, to Professor Duminal to um, open up some more uh, ideas about this topic and about the issues facing women during World War One. Hi, my name is Mary Beth. What propaganda was used during this time? Can you give us some examples? Sure. There, there are a lot of different ways in which uh, Americans were encouraged to support the war effort. There were people called four-minute men and some four-minute women who gave little quick speeches in front of movies, for example. I think the most important is posters. Uh, you'll see, you can see a lot of those. You can find them online, and they um, are really trying to encourage Americans in very brief, vivid ways to support the war, to raise funds, to enlist, to knit for soldiers, to join the Red Cross. So it's a really powerful and very visual type of propaganda that really shapes uh, how Americans understood their role in the war. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. And who we got next? Um, My name is Jordan. Uh, with women being the second line of defense, how are they received by men? So um, you asked the question about second line of defense, which was a term used at the time. The YWCA was responsible for calling women workers in particular. 
um, that. And so I'm going to focus specifically on how men responded to women in the workplace because one of the big deals is they're taking men's jobs because men have gone off to fight, and they're wearing uniforms. They're wearing overalls, which were often called womanalls. And some men weren't very happy about it. A, they're worried that women are going to undercut their wages, although if it was a defense job, there was a, the contracts required that women be paid the same as men to keep that from happening. But there's resentment, and as soon as the war is over, men really are eager for women to get out of their uh, overalls and back into skirts. And so I would say generally there's not much enthusiasm on the part of men for women taking jobs uh, that were formerly formerly men's. There are some exceptions, of course. So, for example, in the railroad industry, a lot of the women who took jobs as clerks were relatives of people who'd gone, aw- gone away, and so there was a sense that they're sort of taking the family's place, but they're not threatening, that kind of thing. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Good. Was there any resistance to the um, when the men sort of were, came back from the war to them being able to uh, take those those labor op- those labor positions back? Um, there, the, some um, women's rights activists expressed great dismay that there wasn't a recognition that uh, women could do these jobs and should be allowed to have. Um, equal opportunity. But for the most part, the I think it was pretty easy for women to return to women's work. It wasn't that they weren't working, but they weren't doing jobs that were better paid and more interesting. Right. Uh, hi, my name is Ricardo. Uh, was there more integration of African Americans or women of color during this particular time? If so, how are they unified and what evidence do we have that they work together? Okay, that's a that's a, actually a kind of depressing question because segregation was alive and well and there was very uh, very little that changed during World War One. African American women who went north to work in factories worked mostly in segregated uh, facilities. Um, All of the organizations that I'm aware of, like the Red Cross and the YWCA, um, were segregated. Um, The thing that I find most interesting about that issue is sort of long-term. The YWCA hired about, I think, uh, maybe 40 African-American women to serve as YWCA secretaries, and they created um, uh, recreation centers throughout um, mostly the East Coast. And these women, once they're in the YWCA, start to challenge the YWCA's own racism from within. And they help to create, long-term, the YWCA is one of the more progressive organizations in terms of race in the 20th century. But in the short term of World War I, very little changed. So it really did take time beyond uh, the the demands that the war, those changes of the war, just didn't, weren't permanent in that way. They were really slow boiling, I guess, in some way. Yeah, and I I think that a number of people are starting to say that you can see the hints of the civil rights movement in World War I. Not that it's very successful, but you create these leaders like the women I was just talking about. And that's a pretty interesting piece of the story. And so now we're calling it the long civil rights movement from from, uh, World War I to the 60s. My name's Taylor, and what organization was used to unify all women during this time? If so, what were they, and in what capacity did they play in the success of the being 
the second line of defense? Okay, that's a good question. There are a lot of national organizations, and one of them is created specifically for the war. It's called the National Council of Women's Defense or some variety of those words. Um, and it was it varied in how in how successful it was in creating strong opportunities for women. Uh, it tended to be dominated by white middle class or uh, upper class women and um, often excluded African-American women altogether, or certainly if they were there, they were in segregated um, places. So there are plenty of national organizations that are doing things, but they tend to not necessarily unify all women. There's a real real disjuncture on the part of race, but also on the part of class, I would argue. Yeah, I think the, the Women's Council of Defense is an interesting body. Um, we cover a little bit about that in our exhibit, um, looking specifically at Harriet Elliott, who was an instructor at the State Normal and Industrial College, which today we know as UNC Greensboro, um, who was appointed to that board by um, President Wilson. But I think it's interesting what the, the, the separation, I, I guess, between what her daily reality must have been living in a, a city that was largely African-American um, with that work that she is having to do at the national level addressing sort of broader questions of what women's role is in the national defense. That's right. She's pretty amazing, I yeah, must She say. is pretty yeah. amazing. Hi, I'm Mara. Hi, Mara. Um, so my question is, who were the female pioneers at this time, and where did they come from? That's a great question, and I could start listing people like the famous suffragists, like uh, Carrie Chapman Catt or Alice Paul, who are really sort of uh, the sort of ringleaders of the suffrage movement at the, at the period. But I've been thinking a little bit about this, and I would say that the pioneers are all over the country, and they're women whose names are now lost to us, who are really crossing boundaries, trying to make a difference in one way or another. And so the women we just talked about, for example, in, in Greensboro, or the women who go abroad, who are um, serving as nurses, but they're also serving as social workers for the YMCA, or they're working for the Red Cross. Uh, there's a level of engagement and um, sort of patriotic enthusiasm that's really quite extraordinary. And these women leave a lot of records, which is unusual for us, so that we can we can sort of explore and get uh, get a sense of who they were and what what the what it meant for them. World War I didn't transform women's lives uh, as a whole, broadly speaking, but I think it transformed individual women's lives who had really interesting opportunities and were pioneers for their time. And that's one of the things I like about the exhibit. It really lets us see the individuals whose names nobody knows, but who were important in that way. Thank you. You're welcome. Great questions from the floor. Absolutely. Certainly when we... Uh, oh, we got one more. We've got one more coming up. Hi, my name is Brian, and uh, my question is, how did the World War I second line of defense differ from the World War II ladies? Uh, okay, so that, I've just finished a book on World War II, so we could go on for a couple of days here. Oh. Uh, it's on working women in World War II. Uh, there are a lot of things that are different. One of them is, is in World War II, uh, there's a massive part, a ma massive effort on the part of the federal government to recruit women workers, which wasn't the case in World War One. It was a much smaller process, and in um, in World War Two, women are um, 
are much more broadly engaged in defense work than they were in World War in World War One. The interesting question is: Was there was the outcome any different? Because in World War One, for example, in work, women lost the better opportunities. They kept working, but they lost the better opportunities. In World War Two, new new women entered in the workforce, which was not the case in World War One. It was really a pretty massive expansion, um, and at the end of the war, women lost most of the better jobs, not all of them, and it created a kind of little place, particularly for women who were part of organized labor, to start a long-term challenge to the discrimination that women face in the workplace. And so when we talk about the feminist movement starting in the 1960s, a lot of historians argue it starts in 1945 when women lose their jobs. So that's a great question. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks so much to all of the contributors from Southeast High School. Give it up for you guys Thanks with your lot. great questions. Uh, you'd mentioned in the last segment um, the idea of the long civil rights struggle that may have begun to simmer during World War I because of some of these opportunities um, that African Americans were had during that time. Um, because of the war. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so the last thing I mentioned was the YWCA. And the other thing that I think is really important is um, the way in which African Americans, as a rule, responded to the pretty bad uh, um, episodes of violence during World War I against African Americans. So there was a huge uh, riot in East St. Louis in 1917 um, that killed a number of blacks, a few whites, and it was uh, a resentment of blacks migrating um, and African-American women are part of the process of reporting, and there you can read their articles on it. It's pretty interesting. But they also were part of the protests that emerged. So, for example, Madam C.J. Walker, who's a famous black entrepreneur, was part of the planning for a massive, silent protest march in New York City, the first of its kind, African-Americans marching in this iconic space, in this in this quiet march to protest violence. Um, another African-American woman helps orchestrate a petition drive to send letters to, to uh, federal leaders to do something about violence. And this is the beginnings for men and women, African-American men and women, of using lobbying as a technique to deal with civil rights. And then the, um, the other thing that I think is 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 pretty important is that we think of the 1920s, when we think about African Americans, one of the things we talk about is the new Negro, which was a term used at the time, right. to talk about the militancy. And it's really associated with men for the most part. But women were absolutely part of it. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that they created a anti-lynching crusade that women organized and um, um, and orchestrated during the 1920s. It's not successful, but nonetheless, it's this piece of becoming active and creating a pattern for African-American women to be part of this long-term process of lobbying and agitating for uh, social justice. So you have somebody like um, Ida B. Wells Barnett, right? So who's, who's somebody we should all know about? And, Absolutely. And, and, and her work as a journalist and an activist. Um, so you think that a lot of her reporting and um, activism came out of some of these events that were 
in some ways caused by the the facts behind World War One. Yes, I mean she's she's already famous, but she's certainly one of the major people who writes about violence and protest violence during the during the war. Um, but there's a there's we were talking earlier uh, to the students about pioneers, and there are just lots of names that we can we can pull up of African American women who aren't famous now, but who were really eager to protest the violence that African-Americans were experiencing and the, and the lack of rights that they experienced. And when we think about um, social changes that came out of World War I, obviously we think too some about the suffrage movement um, with women finally obtaining the, uh, finally obtaining the right to vote nationwide uh, in 1920. Um, in what regard is that a... In what regard is that related to what was going on during World War I? It's crucial. Um, I tend to always sort of precede my comments about World War I to point out that by 1914, when the European War begins, I think 11 states had already enfranchised women. So there's a movement ahead. It's not that the war creates suffrage, but it certainly accelerates it. And it does it in sort of two ways. One is that women... uh, associated with the National American Women's Suffrage Association, use the war to demonstrate women's loyalty. And they use uh, a lot of propaganda themselves to make sure that everyone knows what women are up to and how much they're accomplishing. At the same time, there's a group associated with the Women's Party that's a bunch of rabble-rousers who picket the White House. Mm -hmm. They embarrass um, Wilson with uh, banners that read Kaiser Wilson. And they're suggesting that more democracy has to start at home. And they create such a furor because they're arrested, they're force-fed. And so the argument is, was it the good girls, you know, the really re- respectable women who convinced Wilson ultimately to come out for suffrage? Or was it the disruptive power of the women associated with Alice Paul? And I would argue you had both of them. They work in tandem. Right. And it really makes a difference. Wilson ultimately, it takes him a long time, but he ultimately supports suffrage. It still takes a long time for Congress to pass the enabling legislation to send it to the states. But I think it's really uh, a crucial piece of the story. It's an amazing story with uh, so many facets and so many, um, reaching into so many parts of American life. Um, So it's been really great. Uh, Lynn, having you here and talking to us uh, on our inaugural uh, Greensboro History Museum podcast. It's been uh, fantastic having the History Club from the National History Club from the Southeast High School. Uh, You guys make yourselves heard. All right. Thank you. All right. Having you guys in the studio, uh, bringing some life and fun and youth into this conversation. Uh, We hope to be back soon with some more fascinating topics uh, to tell you all about history, the the history of Greensboro and how it's tied into the bigger history uh, nationwide. So thanks to everybody for joining us today. Thank you for listening to History Notes, a podcast from the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. The Education Department offers several resources for learners both in and out of the classroom. Learn more at greensborohistory.org. Then select the Discover and Learn tab at the top of the homepage. You may schedule a tour, a field trip, or reserve an education trunk for your next lesson. Daily visitors can stop by the museum at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro. Admission is free. You've been listening to History Notes, where we are making history by talking history.
Tune in next month for a new topic, new discussion, and new insight. This has been History Notes.